This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Are you um, are you at your studio today, or do you? What does work like for you? Do you have a separate studio from your place? Or? Yeah, so yeah, so I have two studios: one here and one in Pasadena. Uh, one in Pasadena is one I share with my fellows, um, and obviously I haven't been able to get to Pasadena <laughs> since March. Um, so my up here, I have a three-acre farm uh, in Princeton, and um, I have a horse barn <laughs> where I mm. turned it into a studio. And yep. we're thinking about expanding this, but that's that's where I am today. Yeah, no horses there, right? No horses. We uh, the horses vacated with their you know previous uh, tenants <laughs> here and uh, went to Vermont. But I did ask their permission to turn this into a studio. Nice. Gave them carrot bribe. <laughs> There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, I'm talking to my friend, Makoto Fujimura, about his life as a painter, how 9-11 transformed his work, and how an ancient Japanese art form became kind of a controlling metaphor for his understanding of grace and healing. Stay with us. I was born in Boston. Uh, my father is a research scientist. He's a pioneer in acoustics research. So, or was, passed away four years ago. But I was born in Boston when he was doing his postdoctorate with Noam Chomsky at MIT. Oh, wow. And uh, then went to Sweden for a research grant in Stockholm for two years. And then uh, went to Japan, where he was a professor at uh, Tokyo University then recruited by the famed Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, to do pure research. And so we moved back to the States when I was 13. Hmm. So I navigated two cultures, two languages, not very well. I still feel like I'm a, you know, I'm still learning hmm. <laughs> both hmm. languages. But art became very important to me, obviously. And I've always felt something when I painted, but that became very clear that it was a life's calling in college. I went to Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Mm. Spent time looking into my my own heart and my own giftings, and I came out an artist trying to make it anyways as an artist. I received a Japanese governmental scholarship to study in Japan this ancient technique of Nihonga and apply that to my contemporary work. So I went and I ended up 
being there for six and a half years, I was invited to the master's level curriculum and I was um, invited to the doctorate level lineage program. And uh, that was quite unique for an outsider of the university, let alone outside of the country, student to be invited into this very prestigious lineage program, learning under masters of the craft and art that harkens back to 15th, 16th century Japan. Hmm. And came back, became a Christian somehow in Japan, uh, even though I think I was very interested in spiritual things very early on. And that's what drew me to art to begin with. But when I studied Abak now, I, I also studied literature and poetry. And through the works of William Blake, of all people, I became a Christian. I read his last epic poem, Jerusalem. It's one of the most succinct literary forms and streams of thoughts about the gospel that I have ever read. And I understood why Jesus came and what Jesus did. I began to hear his voice. Didn't know that, but I opened my heart to his voice and I became a Christian. And mm. it took me a year to find out that I was indeed a Christian. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but that's kind of uh, my I, what I call inversion story, because rather than converting, I didn't really have any kind of solid faith in anything else. So yeah. it was kind of inverting into faith, a voice that I heard through my paintings that I recognized in the Bible. Hmm. So it was kind of a process of intuitive journey <laughs> into faith that continues, you know. And yeah. so after Japan, I came back to the States. Um, I had married uh, with two kids then and uh, third on the way. And we decided to move into the city, uh, New York City, uh, to be part of a church planting project by Redeemer Presbyterian Church, uh, Tim Keller's efforts. And uh, we signed up to do that and um, moved into three blocks away from World Trade Centers. And of course, 9-11 marked uh, this traumatic series of events. My wife left the marriage 11 years after, or partly because of trauma, not just 9-11, but, and then I went with you to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, that had a pretty amazing mark uh, as I ended up doing an exhibit in Israel after mm. our trip. And that formed the narrative of what I write about in my new book, and, you know, I'm here in Princeton, yeah. happily sequestered to do my work, yeah. painting, yeah. writing. I'm curious, was there religion in your childhood at all? Not really, although I was ordained to be an elder, a redeemer, and my mother found out about it. And she said, you know, I, I'm not surprised. And I said, what do you mean, mom? And, and she said, you have a great uncle who was a Presbyterian evangelist in Japan. Oh, wow. And I said, you never told me about this. You know, she said, you never asked. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so turns out that her parents, my grandparents, were very strong believers, and they had led uh, what's known as Mukyokai movement, which is an underground movement of people who, it's literally translated, no church movement. Basically, Bible studies turned into communities that took off before and after the war. And uh, my grandparents were heavily involved, le leaders in that movement. Wow. Uh, my mother really didn't 
share her faith until later in her life. So I didn't really grow up in the church or knowing about the fact that I had enormous respect for the Bible. And I was even interested in studying the Bible as I was studying Milton and Shakespeare and Blake in college was uh, probably due to her influence. What was it about the Bible that resonated with you early on? The Psalms and Jesus' words, they made sense to me. They resonated with me, Psalm 139. I remember writing a paper about it as an undergraduate, and William Blake quoted it often. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that made sense to me that I was created to be creative, that this gift of art uh, was given as a gift, not as you know transactional power, mm. but as a gift. So when I read the Bible, as I, as I talk about in my new book, Art and Faith, Theology Making, that this was a voice that was undeniable from early on, that this thing flowing through me was a gift. I didn't own it. It was to be honored, to be refined for me to spend time to invest in it in some way, even though it didn't, it may not lead to any kind of, you know, obvious practical reasons <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of business or anything like that. But it was, it was a pure calling that I felt and I needed to honor that. Was the pathway vocationally, you mentioned the invitation to study in Japan. I'm curious, yeah. like when you first began to kind of declare, I, I want to be an artist. Did you feel like that was something that you found support for? Or did people look at yeah. you the way, look at a lot of artists and go, I mean, are you sure you want to get a job? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, there were a lot of, surely a lot of that. But, but, you know, I told my parents maybe my junior year that I think I need to be an artist. And my mother said, well, you have two uncles who were, and she told me about how hard it was for them, and <laughs> and yet she never dissuaded me. And when I told my father, the scientist, and she said, "Well, that's great because that's what I wanted to become." Oh wow! <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, both my parents and my mother, had kept a painting that I did when I was two, two and a half, in mm. Sweden, and it's this very much abstract painting uh, that I did, but I, I used this, exactly the same colors mm. <laughs> and the move gestural movements that I do today. And she kept it and framed it and gave it to me for my graduation from college. Mm. But you could tell that she saw something early on and nurtured that uh, in me. So I, I was very fortunate to have both parents really more than invested in in what I do as an artist. My father would sit in front of my paintings for hours, literally hours, when he was alive and come into my studio. And you could tell the level of engagement that he had was it was one of deep discernment and joy. And, you know, there's nothing like that when you are an artist to have that level of support. Oh, that's beautiful. And I love the story about her bringing you the piece of art when you were a kid and kind of feeling like, oh, it was it was in there already. Like whatever it is that you're doing as an artist, it was already there in some yeah. in some form. And there's this pure expression, right? There's no ego. It's almost a perfect painting. Every stroke is confident, definitive. So I look at it every day as I mm. walk out of my house and I remind myself, you know, that's that's your goal is to be egoless, hopefully a more sophisticated naivete mm. that allows me to paint surely by intuitive, you know, instinct and let go of 
you know, all that I expect <laughs> from myself or other people or my galleries or whatever, you know, whatever it was that God gave me before I was born is what I need to refine now and express. Was there a moment for you where you realized, there's the time when you realize, I want to do this, I want to be this. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. at some point, there's sort of the world meets you on the other end of that gesture and says, yeah. We think you can do it too, you know? Did you have an experience like that? Yeah. Um, when I was a freshman at Bucknell, I had a doormate who was this jock, very charismatic guy. And um the end of my freshman year, I, I really wanted to paint. And so I asked my professor if I could, you know, do an independent study and st- stay and use the their art barn, (laughs) which was uh, basically sitting empty. So uh, I got permission to do that, and I stayed in the summer. And I ran ran into my friend, and I asked him, you know, what are you doing here, Jay? And he said, well, you know, I'm here for basketball camps. And then he turned to me and said, you know, Marco, what what are you going to do with your life? (laughs) Which is not a question you uh, expect from a jock, you know, <laughs> and I could tell by the way he asked that he had been thinking about it. And I said, well, Jay, that's interesting because I'm here because I want to paint and I, I think I need to be an artist. And I was expecting him to say, you know, well, that's nice. You know, how are you going to make a living kind of thing? You know, And he didn't say that. He said, Marco, I, I think I understand. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, I'm here because of these basketball camps, but I'm not a very good player. But I think I can be a really good coach. Mm. <laughs> so I'm learning to be a coach, really, by playing basketball. And I said, that's amazing. You know, and I remember that conversation because no, no one, you know, at the end of freshman year doesn't know that <laughs> or recognize my own convictions about, you know, how I feel called to be an artist. Well, his name was Jay Wright. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> he became uh, wow. the head coach of Villanova uh, Wildcats and won two national championships. Wow, wow, wow. So <laughs> he was quite right in his convictions. <laughs> I tracked his career, you know, and rooted for him. And I remember that conversation because that's kind of a foreshadowing that happens when we are wrestling with our instincts or intuitive sense of what we need to become, but we're not quite sure. And, you know, you're very fortunate if you can run into somebody (laughs) with the same level of conviction of a kind of of out-of-box way that we shared in that summer afternoon. I remember later on thinking when Jay won the national championship, when he became the head coach, uh, you know, thinking that, well, he knew his path and I knew mine. And um, here we are, right? By that time, I had several shows in New York. I didn't expect to be a writer as well, but I was starting to write. And, you know, 9-11 definitely had a definitive twist to what I do as an artist, in some ways re- responding to the huge fractures in our, our cultures and, our, you know, our time. And those things, you know, become part of how you express into the world. And, uh, you know, even even though I had several shows in New York at the time, I think the moment that I, I realized that, you know, I had attained what I began to do was when I realized that, you know, nobody else should define what success is. 
I get to define that. And that's the true success. And in a sense, we were doing that as freshmen, right? We, we were just both saying, you know, this is what I'm going after. Now it, it, we didn't know what we would, you know, be able to attain. But regardless of what we attained, I mean, that is success in itself, is when you have a goal that, you know, as a young person, knowing what you're passionate about, what you're called to, and what you want to go after, that's, you know, at least the beginning of being able to define your own success. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. Mako has already mentioned this, but it bears emphasizing the role that suffering and loss play in his work as an artist. It's evident in the emotive power of his paintings, but it's also evident in the work he's invested in in more recent years, the art of kintsugi. It's an art form that's built around mending broken ceramics, bowls and vases, where the artist repairs the piece by pouring gold between the cracks, healing the shattered vessel and making something more beautiful and more valuable than the original. My children grew up as ground zero children. Um, we saw so much trauma, obviously, around us. And But I also remember the grace that met us. You know, when our neighbors became truly our neighbors, and when we began to navigate and reconstruct, we were very fortunate that, you know, in 20th anniversary of 9-11, we have brand new buildings, a lot of places in the world. And so we understand what it is to go through trauma. I began to tap into some of the collective traumas of our time. I felt that when Columbine High School happened and prior to 9-11, and I began to paint in response to that 
and columbines are these very delicate, beautiful mountain flowers, kind of funky. It's almost like aliens dropped flowers onto mm-hmm. the Colorado mountainsides. And I began to paint that soon after. And when 9-11 happened, I, there's something in me that connected those fragile emanations that flow out of our world, our natural world, into a very, very fractured earth. And I began to write about that experience. And I, you know, when my wife left uh, the marriage, you know, I had a few years where I really had to go through some darkness to rediscover what it was that I was trying to get to. And I knew my call as an artist, but what does that mean? And then this summer I remarried and um, we're discovering so many new things about beauty. And my bride is an attorney who is dedicating her life to ending human trafficking in our generation. Mm. So I am grateful for her influence because she literally pulls me out of myself Mm. and, you know, challenges me of what it is that beauty and justice, um, when they come together, what we can do. And uh, so through these brokenness and fractures and uh, my life, and there's still hairline fractures that I keep discovering in myself, mm. you know, so it's, it's not over. Uh, it's a journey that continues. But that's why I'm so passionate about Kintsugi, you know, this venerable Japanese tradition of mending broken ceramics with Japan lacquer and gold, making the end piece, uh, restored piece, more valuable than the original because the Kintsugi masters will make a design in the fractures with gold. And so they are highlighting the fractures rather than hiding them. I find such healing in thinking about that and practicing it myself. We just released today, actually, uh, a kit that I collaborated with a master of Kintsugi in Japan to create an authentic kit that anybody can learn to do. Mm. And I'm so grateful that I can speak into the fractures of our time through this. You know, when I was at Columbine High School for their 20th anniversary of that incident, the shooting, one of the victims came up to me, the victim's family. Uh, he, he was a brother of someone who was killed and said to me that I read your books and um, you are a survivor as well. Mm. And I never thought of myself as a survivor until that point, but I understand that psyche. And, and so now, 2021, we're all survivors. Um, if you survive 2020, you're mm-hmm. a survivor. Mm. And that psyche will haunt us. And we're going to carry these hairline fractures that we will discover 15 years later, 20 years later. Mm. That means we have to have a way of addressing those in- invisible scars that we carry with us today. And the fact that there is not a single person on this earth that was not in some way affected by this virus says that we have a lot in common with those strangers across the globe that we we may never meet and yet we are connected through the suffering communion of uh, suffering and yet I think since I am a survivor I can speak into that as an artist as, as a father as a broken person 
who God has mended and continue to mend and pour gold into my fractures. Mm. Moving forward, that's what I would like to do is to paint and write and uh, spread the good news of Kintsugi mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. through, through, you know, that there's a connection between what I call new creation, theology and new creation and Kintsugi as well. It's such a beautiful art. And I mean, it's, it's such a profound metaphor as a way of thinking about healing and trauma and, and grace even. I think one of the things that's so powerful about it and challenging about it is I think it exposes the reality that, you know, in order for us to address those wounds, mm -hmm. we have to be willing to look at them, to pay attention mm -hmm. to them, to care for them, to nurture them. You, you know, you described your father earlier as, as someone who could go mm -hmm. and just sit and, and be before a work of art. As a culture, we're, we're so used to distraction. We're so used to just numbing ourselves and numbing ourselves in large part, like, I don't say that judgmentally. I say that sympathetically because we're, we're walking around with so much pain. It's hard mm -hmm. not to, to want to numb. And so it seems like a lot of your work as a, as an artist and as a writer is, is trying to kind of gently call people to pay attention to those wounds, to that kind of pain. Yeah. You know, Kintsugi is profound. I brought a 17th century Korean bowl that was brought over, basically ransacked, and, you know, because Japan invaded Korea, and brought over to Japan. It was a commoner's noodle dish, noodle bowl, that was used in high tea because Senna Rikyu, the uh, originator of this refined form of high tea in Japan in 16th century, and his disciples started to use Korean bowls intentionally, the commoner's bowls, <laughs> because they wanted to create this message of peace in time of, you know, fractured Japan, literally called feudal war period, called Sengoku Jidai, they created this art form of peace and basically became very powerful and was able to serve the shoguns and one of the most influential aesthetic influences in Japan to this day. So this idea of bringing something like a Korean bowl into Japan and serving high tea. And then it breaks, right? There's an earthquake, many earthquakes in Japan. And the families of tea masters will not mend it right away. They will hold on to the fractured bowl for generations hmm. before they give it to a Kintsugi master, before they give it to a Japan lacquer master. And so I brought one of these given to me by a tea family for the sole reason of bringing it to Columbine High School. And I didn't know what to expect. Um, but when I told them to hold this bowl, which has been served, you know, was in Korea, served in Japan, now broken and mended with gold <laughs> after several generations. And I told them, you know, the families of this cup held on to the fractures for two generations because there are some trauma that is just not possible to fix. Hmm. Some traumas that you will carry for generations and that it's okay to hold on to them. You know, the response of these parents, brothers and sisters were just so profound. And one person said, you know, I can feel that trauma. Mm. as I hold this. 
And so there are things about our time uh, that require a new wineskin, a new metaphor for us to even address. And I think Kintsugi is one of those things that God has given us through this beautiful culture of Japan that has experienced this deep trauma of uh, Sony Christians. And to add to this, it's most likely that these bowls were used in the uh, persecution era, which is about 250 years from 17th, 17th century on mm. in Japan of Christians. So the, the movie Silence, Martin Scorsese's movie and Shusakendo's novel Silence uh, addresses that directly. But they were hidden Christians celebrating Eucharist, pretending to serve tea to each other <laughs> because they were forbidden to have mass uh, Eucharist so these bowls were probably part of that symbolism as well. It was refined during that time. So holding onto the fragments and not trying to fix it, but eventually mending it to make new was probably, and this is total speculation, I have no you know, evidence uh, other than what I see in artifacts, probably part of this you know, theology of new creation was part of Japanese aesthetic. This year, Mako has released a book he's calling his life work. It's titled Art and Faith. It's something that I began to write a long time ago when I first resonated with the word of Christ and uh, Jesus speaking and consider the lilies of the field and, and look at the birds of the air, you know. This vision of abundance that God invokes through Jesus, you know, when Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, you know, he wasn't talking about sparrows, you know, <laughs> flying over us. Um, he was talking about millions of birds. Uh, that Jordan Basin is the largest migratory path for birds in the world. So literally millions of birds fly over us every spring, every fall from Europe to Mozambique and back. And that's what Jesus was saying. He was invoking creation's abundance, God's abundance, and saying that I'm here to not only remind you of this abundance of God, but of the new creation being ushered through me. And so that kind of observation is what an artist makes when you know we are traveling through Israel or reading uh, the Bible. I make a point in the book that God is probably the only true artist <laughs> Because God is able to create something out of nothing, mm -hmm. you know? And the the very notion of creativity and imagination flows out of God's heart of love. Mm. God doesn't need us. <laughs> and yet God creates out of love and creates abundance. So when we get trapped in a scarcity mindset, in a Darwinian way of survival, and we fight our cultural wars to demonize the other side so we can win, we're not practicing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so writing this book was like journeying into that mindset as an artist and, and believing that as well and saying that there is generativity that is possible when we are faced with the impossible scarcity situation. That human imagination can take us into sanctified place rather than using our imagination to create conspiracy theories mm -hmm. we can be training our imagination to grow into a larger communal vision that can change and transform the world mm. 
So an artist's vision, a, a musician making a song, all these things can lead into the church coming alive with sanctified imagination and being able to point to the sky and say, look, there are millions of birds, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. still traversing. The God's liturgy is active and alive, and we can anticipate the new if we simply look up and believe that that is the world that we live in. We don't live in this scarcity-ridden, zero-sum game territories of culture wars, mm. just try to defend each year and ever-shrinking territories. Mm. No, we live in abundant creation, and our ground is filled with fertile soil. If we can learn to tend to it, take care of it, steward it, and you know, this, this is a generational work. Mm. So it's slow work, slow hard work. But this is what God has called us. This is the gospel. And when Christian church is not doing that, who else is going to do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and show forth the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, right? Goodness and self-control. We're not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit today in the church. Mm -hmm. And we expect the world to be different. <laughs> So theology making comes out of those uh, Galatians 5 understanding of caring for culture. And uh, my, book, my book is an entry into a conversation of looking at the gospel, not just as a fix-it thing, but as a redemptive story that leads into the new, to create a new wineskin. For Christians, when Easter came, that was not the end of our messaging. It was, it's the beginning of our journey. And Pentecost and Ascension, that leads into this new wineskin that we are part of. And that furthermore, God is asking, actually asking us to create and imagine with God into the new. But as an artist, it, it's always been very clear to me that the Bible is a creative book. It's all about the sanctified imagination. Hmm. Knowing your story, you endured the suffering of 9-11, you experienced kind of bicultural realities, which I know would have come with its own difficulties and traumas. You experienced the end of your marriage, and yet here you are on the other side of, of all of that, and you have an an incredibly, I, I think, an encouraging, inspiring vision for what the church can be, the generative nature of the church, of Christians, of, of artists in the world. Is that something that has come, has been birthed out of that suffering, or is that something that sort of endured in the midst of that suffering for you? Yeah, when we traveled through Israel together, I think I was still in shock. Mm. I couldn't even talk about what I was going through. I don't know how I am able to say these things, other than certainly grace and faith that has been poured into me very generously without any kind of merit. <laughs> mm -hmm. I can't explain it. I remember a time soon after I came back from Israel, I went into the studio and I was working on this huge painting. I painted this painting, which is 33 feet long, but I don't remember it. Mm. I kind of force myself go to the studio and once I'm in the studio my body starts to move you know because of so many years of mixing pigments and painting 
And I come out not even remembering what I had done. And when I saw this painting, I, I had a show at Gonzaga University Museum, and they displayed this painting, um, seven feet by 33 feet long, called Silence Mysterium. And I, I was like astonished. I, I, I don't remember painting it. Mm. But somehow this is like the best painting I ever done, <laughs> you know, mm. because my ego is not there. I'm, I, I'm just purely trusting my instinct to paint this image. And these priests, because of Gonzaga University, right, were coming in to have their morning meditations in front of my paintings. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I, I said to myself, how does these things happen? Well, first of all, God is the artist. If there's one thing that I know for sure, God creates through us. And God does not leave us to our, you know, orphan states. Um, we may think we are there, but God has given us this new life, new hope in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. And that means that whenever I am endeavoring to make something new into the world, the Spirit is not only with me, but the Spirit chooses with joy and delight be part of that process. And I can feel that, you know, now that I've come out of that darkness. But I, I sense that that is exactly what we're going through right now, during the shutdown, during the pandemic, during the frustrations that we're experiencing, that this Sabbath has given us uh, a way to create into the new if we allow that. And I certainly experienced it. 2020 was the hardest year, and yet it was, it's, it's the most joyous for me because I met Hajun at the beginning of the year and we were able to, two busy people, be able to spend time together, hmm. you know, without any distractions. And I know our relationship is built on a time of reflecting and praying together for, for the kingdom to advance and um, that joy, you know, even, I, I always tell students, you know, even, even if there's 1% chance that love exists in the world, we should just gamble on that. We should just bias entire lives on the, that possibility. And the good news is it's absolutely true that love exists in the universe. That's what holds it together. There are times when that is not obvious and difficult to get to, but that's what faith can do is to just bank on the possibility of that 1% chance of love existing in the world. First he sings and then he goes And what it means is hard to know Thanks to Mako for joining me on the show. And thank you for listening. If you're liking the show, take a moment and leave us a rating and review in iTunes. You can also follow us at at CultivatedPod on Twitter and at CultivatedPodcast on Instagram. And please send us feedback at podcasts at ChristianityToday.com. This episode was produced by me. It was edited by Mark Owens. Our theme song is Eden Was a Garden by Roman Candle. And our music is by Dan Phelps. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? 
A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?